Hello, and welcome to the Bitcoin Butlers podcast. I am Mike Watkins, and with me, as always, is my good friend and business partner, Matt Burke. Hello. So Voyager Digital filed for bankruptcy this week, and we thought this would be a good time to discuss some of the meltdown that has been going on in the crypto space that has affected the price of Bitcoin, and also a good time to discuss the difference between Bitcoin and crypto. So Voyager Digital filing for bankruptcy is very big news. Matt, what is your understanding of this Voyager situation? Well, the uh, the short answer is that it's just another one of these crypto lending platforms that has seemed to have not been able to withstand this latest drawdown. And Voyager um, had a tremendous amount of money owed to it from Three Arrows Capital. Um, I think they had about... 300, 300 million, like 15,000 plus Bitcoin, uh, plus another 350 million worth of stable coins um, that, that they had borrowed from Voyager. And after not repaying uh, in a timely manner, uh, Voyager issued them a default notice on their loan and uh, it doesn't look like they're going to collect that. So it's, uh, it's just another one of these, you know, when you go back a couple months and we started, we saw this with, uh, with Terra and, and Luna, uh, we've seen Celsius have issues and this is just another one of these dominoes that continues to fall in that space uh, because people are, are chasing yield that uh, may not be realistic. Well, I think anytime you see yields of 10%, 18%, 20%, you have to start digging a little bit and trying to find out why are they offering and how are they able to offer such a high yield? And I think a lot of things, I think something that, that got people kind of twisted was that a lot of people felt this was like a, a low risk, even a no risk type of investment. Right. And when you look at any type of return on an investment, um, inevitably, if it's a legitimate investment, you're going to see in kind of that risk return uh, relationship there. You're not going to get a higher return unless you're taking more risk. So the mm -hmm. higher the return, typically the riskier the investment. And so when you see uh, these yields, you know, double digit yields being offered to investors for what's essentially the equivalent of a cash deposit in, a, mm -hmm. in the form of a stable coin, uh, mm -hmm. you really have to ask yourself, why are they able to do this? And, you know, what we've seen here is that you've got all of these players that are kind of uh, kicking the can to one another in a way mm -hmm. uh, they'll offer yield on, on one thing. And then they'll, you know, they'll take that money and they'll loan it out to someone else and that person will pay yield. So you've got all of this kind of rehypothecation of these, uh, these loans kind of going around in a, in a bit of an incestuous circle. And so, you know, that's by its nature kind of scammy and uh, is going to result in, in some people losing their money in that case. Well, I think it's resulted in a lot of people losing their money. And I'll be honest, I, I, we haven't, I haven't personally dug very deep into any of this stuff because when I, when I looked into it, even initially, it was just screaming scam to me. There's just no way to make these kind of returns. And, and to be honest, if you could make a 20% return every year, sort of guaranteed with very low risk, you really wouldn't have much need to do much else. I mean, that's that's a spectacular return. Uh, it's almost double the NASDAQ for the past 10 years or so. Certainly about double the S&P. And you have to ask yourself, how are they able to do this? And the answer is they weren't able to do it for very long. They're able right. to- it, it, it's, the, it's a matter of time. You, they can do it because uh, you have the money coming in and then you can pay mm -hmm. out yield for some period of time. But- eventually um, it catches up and you can't kick the can forever. Mm -hmm. Well, the focus of what we do is Bitcoin. I think now would be a good time for us to get into the difference between Bitcoin and everything that's not Bitcoin. And I'm going to, I'll just use a term, I guess, crypto for everything that's not Bitcoin, because inevitably when you have a conversation with someone about Bitcoin, you say something about Bitcoin with someone you may or may not know they will always bring up some other random coin. Sure. It's almost a guarantee. Mm 
like there's Bitcoin, but there's this other thing. And in reality, not investment advice in any way. We have to say that we do not give out investment advice. But in reality, Bitcoin is unique amongst the 20,000 plus coins. There's nothing else that's like Bitcoin. Not even close. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, you know, Bitcoin is really the only one that you could consider to be a commodity um, compared to these other coins out there. I think a lot of these coins are really nothing more than unregistered securities in a way. They are a piece of a of a technical, uh, you know, technological platform that um, may claim to be decentralized, may you know, claim to have some of the characteristics that Bitcoin has, but when it comes down to it, they're really not the same. And the difference is that, you know, there's two, two things that I see uh, that really differentiate Bitcoin. Um, the first one is the, the fact that it's got, I mean, it's the first, it is the first of all of the cryptocurrencies. Mm. It laid the groundwork. Most of these coins in some way are, you know, the code that they run on is, is very much uh, based on, on Bitcoin for a lot of these. Um, we know that's certainly the case with Ethereum and most of these tokens are Ethereum based. So mm. you've got, um, you know, kind of an adaptation of the original Bitcoin code, but what but what you don't have with those is the world's most powerful computer network securing it. And so the mm. network is what creates a lot of the value. But then when you um, layer on the proof of work consensus mechanism and the difficulty adjustment, it really makes it an entirely different asset than any of these others, because you know, with such great uh, accuracy, what the, issuance schedule is for Bitcoin. And mm. you know that, you know, even though, you know, it may not always be every 10 minutes over time, every 10 minutes, a new block is going to close and it's going to be uh, validated by the network and it's going to be placed into a block, you know, with proof of work attached to it. And whichever mm. chain has the most proof of work is the one that's valid. And so it makes it very, very difficult to change any transaction within the Bitcoin ledger. Um, whereas with a lot of these other coins, you can just, you can roll back the, the ledger if you want to, you can't do that with Bitcoin. And so we've seen it happen. We've seen it happen with Ethereum. You know, mm -hmm. there was an instance where there was a bug in the software and someone exploited it. And uh, you know, some programmers said, up, oh, nope, do over. And they rolled it back as if it never happened and fixed the code and, you know, and they erased those transactions. Well, you know, some people might say, oh, that's a good thing because you stop people from getting hurt. But the re reality is that that's not a decentralized form of money um, or decentralized uh, network. That is, you know, mm -hmm. the absolute ability to change the uh, the history of the database um, more or less at will. And so all of these mm -hmm. allow you to do that. The issuance schedule is, you know, we don't know with a lot of these how many uh, tokens there will ever be. We don't know how many were mined before, you know, they kind of went public. So how, you know, what, uh, what stakeholders are there that are, that are holding these huge quantities of coins. And then with a lot of these, when you get into the proof of stake consensus, really all you have is nothing different than the existing monetary system where the ones that have the most, uh, assets make the rules. Mm -hmm. I mean, when you look into Bitcoin, you really start to understand it. It's, it's, I think personally, it's just quite a marvel just to to think through all the parts that are there and see how they all work together and, and the genius of Bitcoin. And then when you see the other things in the crypto market, they're all just cheap knockoffs, cheap replicas that that don't have any of the the essence of Bitcoin, like they look and run sort of like Bitcoin, but the fact that I don't really think that any of them are truly decentralized. There may be some decentralization to some of them, but Bitcoin is the only thing that's truly decentralized and also does not have a board of directors or a CEO or anybody that's really a one person or one group that's, that's determining the direction of it 
and the course of it. It's, it's really uh, autonomous in many ways, even though there are, I don't know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of computers supporting this network. That's right. Um, I think that over time, you know, it, I think more people will come to understand the difference. And I think that when you even see a lot of the regulations that are being proposed around all of this, um, you can kind of see some of those differences being highlight, highlighted where, um, you know, the, most recently we saw with the proposed legislation from Senators Lummis and Gillibrand that, mm -hmm. you know, they're looking to have the uh, Commodities Board regulate Bitcoin, um, which tells you something because they're not saying that, you know, Ethereum or Solana or Cardano or any of these other coins that have, you know, some following are commodities. Yeah, I, I don't know what the government is really going to what the governments around the world are really going to do with Bitcoin because there's really not much they can do to stop it. And when I say stop it, I don't mean that they can't curtail some of the use in their countries. They can't make things difficult. I mean, they are not going to stop Bitcoin from running. No, no. one's going to stop Bitcoin from running. Uh, we heard something from a good friend of ours who helped me conceptualize this and just said that every... Every 10 minutes, Bitcoin is going to come along and put down another block and there's nothing you or anyone else can do to stop it. And right. when you realize that you have this machine that is sort of kept alive, it's, it's, it incentivizes humans to keep it alive with monetary rewards. And in, in many situations, there are significant monetary rewards. So people spend... Well, I mean, billions of dollars with these, you know, the, the amount of money spent on Bitcoin miners worldwide right now is, is billions of dollars. And in the future, probably be even more. And you also have Intel making chips now for uh, Bitcoin mining. And I believe Samsung. Samsung was, just announced, mm -hmm. yep, they're going to be making mm -hmm. a, a chip that is supposedly uh, extremely efficient and, uh, you know, not as uh, much of a power hog as some of these other mm. ASIC chips. But yeah, you're going to see major chip makers uh, coming up with ways to make Bitcoin mining more efficient because mm. ultimately the goal of Bitcoin mining is going to be profitability. And so if you can have a more efficient chip, if you can have cheaper energy, if you can have otherwise wasted energy, if you can make deals with electric companies to uh, to help support their grid by buying the excess power at cheap prices, all of these things are going to continue to help Bitcoin evolve. And in my opinion, can really do some amazing things for society just in terms of um, of energy and the ability to transfer value instantly. Yeah. It's funny that we, we both have similar thoughts on the Bitcoin energy thing. So the FUD around Bitcoin energy is that Bitcoin's an energy hog and Bitcoin's going to boil the oceans and Bitcoin's bad for the power grid, et cetera, et cetera. In reality, it's the opposite. And we went over that in one of the earlier episodes, but the more you understand it, the more, remarkable it is that almost everything you read is not true or hasn't been well thought out or just simply garbage intended to to misdirect you and mislead you and i i was reading something earlier today about the texas power grid mm -hmm. how the miners there are buying the excess but when the when the grid needs power the miners just shut down Right. They have agreements in place that just mm -hmm. say okay and the interesting thing that i'm really fascinated by this whole dynamic and mm -hmm. and it, it took, is interesting for sure and it took me a little while to kind of understand that the the facts around energy power companies have to be built around peak usage mm -hmm. um, because if demand goes up you have to have the energy available for the consumer and so if you've got an average amount of usage um, which is less than the peak amount of usage as it always would be um, your average will always be less than your max. Um, then if you're able to sell off the difference between the average and the peak, it, but use it when you need it, you've got a really kind of symbiotic relationship there between the miners and the mm -hmm. power companies and the consumers, because now 
you're allowing the grid to be more stable because they're generating more energy and a piece of that's getting scooped up by the Bitcoin miners. Um, but if demand increases, the energy companies just say, hey, you know, per our agreement, we're going to raise the price of this amount of energy and you need to shut down. And that is good for everybody because the Bitcoin miners aren't going to pay. They don't want to pay mm -hmm. more for the energy. They'd rather just not mine the coins if it's going to be unprofitable. So it's one of those situations where you're better off doing nothing than mining at a loss um, or at a lower profit. So they'll just mm -hmm. kind of hit the pause button, let the energy companies sell off what they need to, to meet the peak demands. And then when that you know demand subsides, they'll say, okay, you can power back up. And so it's a really uh, kind of elegant way to, uh, to keep that, that in check. So here's something I didn't understand that hopefully would be uh, of value to our listeners and correct me if I'm getting any part of this wrong. So a power company can't just increase or decrease how much power they're making with like the flip of a switch. They correct. want, they want to, it, I don't know the details of how that works, but I just know that it's just not something where there's a dial that say, okay, we need more energy. Just, you know, Turn it up to 11. Crank it up. Right. Right. So the way it works is like, let's just say that the the max, we're just going to use fake numbers here to keep the math easy. The max that your, your uh, uh, power center uh, can generate is about 1,000 watts. Your power plant can generate, let's just say, about 1,000 watts an hour. But the demand for the the area that you supply that power to, and let's keep in mind that electricity doesn't move across the country. It's, it's fairly local. Electricity can only move. I don't know how many miles so it far, is. Yeah. yeah it's, it, 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 it might starts be to dissipate. Miles, you, right. Yeah. You can't really store it or transport it very right. effectively. And, and that's the thing to keep in mind is that you can't really store it or transport it very effectively unless you're using batteries. It's not like these, these power plants just have a way to, to keep an inventory of excess power there. They basically it's use it or lose it. And a lot of them lose it. A lot of it just gets just converted into heat. Mm -hmm. So what the Bitcoin miners are doing, they're saying, okay, your normal usage is 800 watts an hour and your power plant is producing 1,000 watts per hour. We will take that extra 200 watts per hour and we'll use it and we're going to pay you for it. But... If you ever need more, if you ever need to go up to a thousand, we will just simply shut down our machines for you for your peak, and then when the peak is over, we will pick up the uh, the extra leftover, whatever that may be. Yep, is that about right? It's about right. Um, mm -hmm. And so, and, and a couple other things that this does, and and look, this is assuming that the miners are the ones that are that are doing this work. Um, I could see a case, you know, down the road where you see the power companies themselves starting to mine Bitcoin. Um, but either way, um, whatever extra revenue is generated by those power companies, it, it is excess profit for them, but it's also working capital and the ability to take that money. So if you've got, if you can only sell 800 Watts on average, and now all of a sudden you're able to sell a thousand Watts consistently, you've just increased your revenue by some percentage and it won't be, you know, it's not linear because you're going to sell that last 200 mm -hmm. at a lower price, but you still have revenue that you wouldn't have otherwise had. So now you can take that money and, you know, reinvest it into your own infrastructure. You can actually improve. I mean, we've got, issues in this country with uh, the power grid. We know that mm -hmm. you know, a lot of really high population areas and high demand areas, we, they face rolling blackouts, brownouts, you know, all kinds of issues mm -hmm. um, where they're scrambling in some cases. We've seen it in Texas. We've seen it in California. Um, but if, if by generating this extra revenue, um, they now have the ability to make more capital investment into their own infrastructure and make their own operations more efficient. Um, it could kind of boost the entire industry. Mm. And also for the community, it boosts, there's a boost for the community because you can now have a larger power plant. You can have a power plant that can operate at its max or it's a, it's, it's whatever the most efficient, uh, most cost-effective and efficient level is for that 
that power plant, and then there'll be a taker of that extra energy. And because there's a taker of that extra energy and because that taker will turn off when you need it, your community will have extra power when it needs it. So you don't have these rolling blackouts when it's 110 degrees outside when people need air conditioning most or when it's negative 10 degrees outside where right. people need heat most, although heat obviously comes from different sources, but it's the same kind of thing. So there's a real benefit to the community there. And that's also something that that's unique to Bitcoin because most of the Ethereum tokens are run in data centers like AWS or Google or Microsoft Azure. Right. And those are, uh, you know, and when you, even in the ones that are proof of stake, which Ethereum is not yet, but um, mm -hmm. they say sometime soon, who knows, but any of those uh, altcoins are being run on, centralized in centralized data centers um mm. that also have a tremendous energy use even though they're um, not you know they're not uh necessarily spinning numbers to create a proof of work consensus they're still using plenty of energy and so you know again i i don't i understand why you hear this environmental uh you know, hate against Bitcoin, but the reality is that when you compare that to pretty much any other industry that uses energy, it, there's, there's really, it's, it's no worse than any of them. In fact, it's, uh, better, with, in it's, it's better and actually has positive uses for society. And that's, if we're talking about the differences between Bitcoin and the other ones, I don't think most investors and most people who want to buy Bitcoin really care about the benefit to the community or to the power grid that Bitcoin may have. I think a lot of people might be environmentally conscious. And uh, I know that both of us uh, are big lovers of nature and uh, want the world to be a very pretty, beautiful place for, for us to go hiking in and to enjoy. And uh, Bitcoin is a net good in that area. So it's really, it's, I'm not surprised that all the news is wrong because News is usually pretty wrong about most things. I mean, I, I would say for most people, there's there's actually a name for this phenomenon where you read an article about something you really know, and you're like, wow, they got everything wrong in this article. And then you <laughs> jump to another article, and you believe everything that's in that article. And the reality is, is that the people who are writing these articles don't really know the subject matter. And... Um, you know, I know that any time that I've been part of an article or been quoted, I've been surprised how many times I've been quoted and they get the quote wrong. Sure. So, you know, Bitcoin is a net good. It is different than all of the other cryptocurrencies. And what I'm hopeful of during this period is that the shakeout of the, the crypto market uh, helps people refocus and understand that there really is only one. I understand that some of these projects might be something, and I think this is something I'm stealing from you. I think you told me one time that the all the altcoins are like penny stocks. Mm -hmm. And people aren't really super hyped on investing in a penny mm -hmm. stock. They'll, they'll buy a piece of junk on the NASDAQ without really thinking about it because their friend told them to. But once you start to hear the word penny stock, then people start to freak out a bit. Like they're not super comfortable with that. And these other, these other coins are really just kind of penny stocks. I mean, you, you can't have, we have a gold rush going on right now. We'll call it a crypto rush. And there are 20,000 or so other projects that are out there. Realistically, how many great companies did the internet bring us? 15, 20, most people could probably only name five or six. So, and, and during the, I remember the dot-com boom in the late nineties, early two thousands, you knew a lot of these companies and these companies were listed on NASDAQ were just going to fail. I mean, it was just, it, sure. was, it was kind of a joke, but you never know which ones. I mean, no one predicted, nobody predicted that Amazon would be the, the monster that it is now. I mean, it was a bookseller. Right. Uh, I, I saw something recently. You can buy a pet on Amazon. I didn't look into it, but you know, they're getting there's there's very few areas which Amazon is not touching currently, and and 
or have plans to expand into. So no one saw Amazon. You know who uh, a really big player was back then was Yahoo. Yahoo was, yeah. And that was, you know, pre Google days. And so mm-hmm. um, I think, you know, they were in, ter- in terms of search, they were certainly, you know, mm-hmm. the, the leader for many, many years. Um, but, uh, but yeah, there, there really were a lot of companies and I would say in the call it 98 to 2001 timeframe that, um, you know, some of them had, huge market caps. Some of them had, uh, you know, founders and investors who made many, many times their money. Mm-hmm. Um, and by around the end of 2001, uh, a huge amount of them were gone. So uh, I think you see some of those similar dynamics here where there are, you know, there are very few projects that really have the fundamentals to, uh, to make it in the long term. And nothing is even close to Bitcoin. So I would say for our listeners that anytime you hear what's the difference between Bitcoin, like why not just get Solana? Solana is like, I don't even know what it is, a couple of cents a coin, if that, I don't even know. But, you know, whatever someone tells you, maybe you should get. My advice to everyone is I never tell anyone to buy. I tell everyone to go study Bitcoin. Just go study Bitcoin. Study it. After you study it, you can make a decision on what you'd like to do. And I know when I got into this and I started, you know, our, while my primary focus was Bitcoin, you still see these other coins that are going up so rapidly. It's just human nature to say, sure. I, I would like a piece of that. Jump on and I'd like, that. yeah, I want it. That's just, that's just being intelligent. If you see something that, that could be beneficial to you. But, and I always heard they're all garbage. They're all garbage. Just, you know, from the from the the good resources that I was consuming, it was always just it's Bitcoin and everything else is pretty much garbage. And now the time has gone on. And we've seen this thing happen with Voyager and Three Arrows and Celsius and Terra and Anchor and who knows who else. You realize that it was much worse than you really thought it was to begin with. While you thought those other things were penny stocks. People were doing crazy things with them. They were leveraging them. They were lending them. They weren't treating them like they were this crazy speculative, I'll call them penny stocks again, that were just kind of worthless. And then it happens and everything crashes. And And it happened fast. (laughs) Fast. I mean, it happened like it's been a matter of weeks, right? Just almost everything changed. As far as Luna and Terra, I mean, that basically went from, you know, <laughs> that went from them saying they're going to buy ten billion dollars worth right. of Bitcoin, Bitcoin yep. to being gone in yep. like a few weeks, and they pulled down. There were a lot of people. I know Three Arrows supposedly had a lot of Terra, a couple hundred million they lost in that deal. Mm-hmm. I think. Um, mm-hmm. And there's yeah. a guy, uh, Mike Novogratz. Mm-hmm. He was one of the early Bitcoin guys. And he's got, and I might be getting this wrong. I know we're getting half it right. I think he's got a Bitcoin tattoo on one shoulder and a Luna tattoo. Luna. I know he yeah. definitely has a Luna tattoo on the other shoulder. So this guy was, this guy's been around. He was a hedge fund manager. The guy's, he's probably in his 60s, I'm guessing. He's been around for 30 to 40 years. And he was such a big believer in Terra that he got a tattoo of that. <laughs> So anyway, there's, it's, I think it's important that people understand that while they see all these prices going down of all this crypto and they hear about the crypto winter and all this stuff is melting down, a lot of that meltdown was inevitable. Unfortunately, it does affect the price of Bitcoin, although uh, people are able to pick up Bitcoin at a cheaper price. You know, it's, it, there's a weird thing that, if Bitcoin was trading at 60,000 a coin going to 70,000 a coin, well, let's just say this. Let's just use this thought experiment. If Bitcoin is at 20,000 or so today, and then over the next month, it runs up to 60,000, triples over the next 30 days, people will be rushing to buy it at 60,000. Absolutely. Be a frenzy, a feeding frenzy at 60,000 because it's tripled in a month. However, 
not that many people are interested in buying it at 20, right? Not that many people are interested in paying one third of what they would pay. Now, there's some other factors in there because obviously when you see an asset that's moving up very quickly, there's a big FOMO situation there. And sure, you can't call the bottom. <laughs> no. And, and, and unfortunately, while, while people think that their investment advisors, and analysts are really driven by data and logic and thoughtfulness. The reality is, is that much of that is driven by emotion. Even when Absolutely. you're turning to professionals it, there, for advice. Yeah, there's a huge psychological factor there. And I mm -hmm. think you've seen it, you know, and not just in, in this market, but in, in most markets where, you know, when, when things are running hot, everybody wants to jump on. And when things are, pulling back, everyone's like, Whoa, that's too risky. I'm not touching that. So, mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's just, it's an interesting view of human psychology that says that I want to, I want to buy something when it's more expensive and I don't want to buy it when it's cheap. Um, is just kind of hard to get your head around, but everybody's been there. It's just, mm. you know, that fear takes over and, and stops you from wanting to buy it, even though, you know, you could argue that it's a good price. Well, everyone wants to buy something on the way up. People love to buy things on the way up, myself included. Uh, no one likes to buy stuff on the way down. And when something's been beaten down, there are very, very few that come along and will buy it. Although we have a friend uh, who, who picked up uh, AIG, that insurance company. Mm -hmm. AIG was trading, this is back... I guess he must have bought it in like 2008 or so. And I know that I think he put like $50,000 into it and he picked it up. I don't know what it was trading for. It may have been trading for like 50 cents a share, mm -hmm. something like that. Yeah, and he told his killed. wife, <laughs> he said, we're either going to lose $50,000 or we're going to do really well. And last I checked, it was trading about 30 or so. So he made like... 60 X on his money. Mm -hmm. And so he saw something that other people didn't see. He's a really smart guy and he had a conviction and he stuck with it and he waited a number of years and that's not just hitting a home run. I mean, that's, that's pretty spectacular. So, yeah. all right. Anything else on this? Um, no, I think that that was it. Um, I, uh, I realized I did forget to put our, uh, Voyager on fire slide up. Um, before we that's talk a, that's a good it. picture i like I that one a big pile um, of money that's kind of what happened although it really wasn't a pile of money it was a pile of fake money that right. <laughs> exactly um so the uh yeah let's uh i guess we can jump into some more of the uh the kind of adoption news and and mm. that stuff which we talk about every week um so the next one we had um is the uh the chivo wallet so the the el salvador um, Bitcoin wallet Chivo uh, had $52 million worth of remittances in the first five months of 2022. So January through May of 2022, um, which I think uh, percentage wise is not a huge percentage of El Salvador's remittances, but you know, depending on which uh, news source you go to for this, it's either viewed as a as a very good thing or a very bad thing, which I which I find interesting. Um, you know, f the way I look at this is that fifty two million in remittances. I don't know what the average remittance size is coming into El Salvador, um, which I believe most of those remittances are typically coming from the U.S. or, or Mexico. Mm. Um, or other countries where, um, where people who live in El Salvador, where their families are working. Um, but I wouldn't imagine that those are particularly large transactions, um, at a given time. So, you know, at a minimum, we're talking about thousands of transactions. Um, you know, I'd say probably many thousands of transactions, um, that have been moved from, you know, places like, uh, Western union or, um, possibly even some more, some other electronic payment platforms, whether that's PayPal or I don't know, mm -hmm. um, cash app, um, 
all of those are, uh, you know, are still in the mix, but you're seeing a significant amount of, of these transactions happening in Bitcoin. And I think uh, one thing that I think is really interesting about this $52 million versus all of the rest of the remittances is that, you know, El Salvador is a country where 70% of the people don't have bank accounts. Mm -hmm. And mm. all you need in El Salvador in order to use your Chivo wallet or to transact in Bitcoin or over the Lightning Network, you just need a phone with an internet connection. And where, you know, only 30% of the country of El Salvador has bank accounts, I think it's like 80 to 90 something percent have cell phones. It's a large percentage. The mm -hmm. majority have it. Um, and I think it's interesting that, you know, to note that in order to do this, you don't need a bank. You just need a phone. And, you know, if you're going to use Western Union is different because you can go from one physical location to another to send the money. And, but you also have to go and you have to wait um, for it to show up. Um, and it's expensive. Mm. For all of the other ones I mentioned, whether it's PayPal, Venmo, Cash App, all of those, you pretty much need a bank account in order to, mm -hmm. to utilize it. Right. So it's right. not really a solution for the unbanked. Um, mm -hmm. And that's not just an El Salvador comment. I mean, that's just a global comment that mm -hmm. if you are using the Bitcoin network, whether that's over Lightning or actual Bitcoin, um, if you're using that to transfer value between any two points in the world, um, it's going to be instant. It's going to be almost free and it's going to be um, permanent. Um, mm -hmm. No one's going to, you know, you can't bounce a check in Bitcoin. So, mm -hmm. Um, I think that, that that's just an interesting piece of it. And, um, and I'm curious to see, you know, how this continues to grow and what percentage of their total remittances this ends up being. Mm. Yeah. So I, I think that there are a couple ways, there are a couple of things that I, I glean from this. Uh, the first is, and correct my math if you can, if I'm wrong, but let's just, I think the average remittance and I could be wildly off is probably somewhere between a hundred to $250. Okay. But let's just say it's $500 per remittance. Mm -hmm. Well, 52 million divided by 500,000 is 104,000 transactions. Your math's right so far. Okay. So let's just say a hundred thousand or so transactions in five months right? So mm -hmm. that's 20,000 transactions per month. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of transactions for a new technology that these are the early adopters, right? It's, it, it doesn't matter if all of a sudden El Salvador has this. It's not like they're going to have some kind of bizarre adoption curve where everybody's just using it from day one. You're, you're trying to get uh, a country of, I think the country's got about 4 million people, right? I think 6 million. Okay, 6 or so. But that's a lot of users to get on there. And, and you have to consider the sophistication of the users. So for older people, let's just say anyone in El Salvador over the age of 70, they probably struggle with this quite a bit. Mm-hmm. So you're so you're talking about, but regardless, with all that, you still had some pretty crazy adoption numbers. And I don't think that the number of five hundred dollars is exactly right. If the average remittance is let's say two hundred fifty dollars, then you're talking about almost forty thousand transactions a month, mm -hmm. and that to me is a huge success. If you're if you're launching something new. And you're getting people to do one of the most, one of the exercises that requires the most amount of trust, right? Sending money, you, you don't just trust anyone to send your money. You want to make sure this is actually going to work. So you have to have a pretty good amount of faith in what you're using. So let's say that we have somewhere between 20,000 and 40,000, could even be more than 40,000 for all we know, transactions per month. On this new platform, 
I think that's amazing. I know it's a small percentage of the the overall remittances, but you know what what do you expect exactly in year number one? So I think that's that's one sign of a huge success, and I, it also makes me think about the impact that this will have and that Bitcoin will have globally because we're only talking about, for the most part, we're talking about the U.S to El Salvador. I bet you 90x percent of these these remittances are coming from the US to El Salvador. But then we have to start to think about the world a little bit bigger in that you can use this to send money from any country to any country, from any person to any person. And so you could see quite a bit of of remittances that go to families in other countries going worldwide meaning people in Europe are sending it to someone in Guatemala, someone in, in Germany is sending this to someone. I'm not even going to use like a necessarily a third world country, but someone in Portugal, that the ability for people just to send payments to who they want to send to, who are not in their jurisdiction, who a lot of times are in another country, is significant. And we could see this really being, I could see us looking back on this in 10 years and saying, remember when we talked about the 52 million in El Salvador, right? That was funny because now it's just a common thing that nobody really thinks about. And then the, probably the global, uh, uh, the global amount for half a year is maybe like, you know, 500 billion or something just between people who knows. But I think that's an excellent start for El Salvador. And I, if there are news stories that, you know, there's, you know that saying, uh, lies, damn lies, and statistics, you can sure. frame this any way you want to frame it. But if we're being intellectually honest, we have to, to realize this is a new technology. This is something, like you said before, that helps the unbanked. I don't think people in the U.S. really get that concept of being unbanked, that so many people are disconnected from financial institutions. We don't think about it because we live in a rich country. And, you know, you've had a bank account since you were a teenager. Right. But but there are plenty of adults in El Salvador that do not have a bank account and therefore are excluded from you know, financial technology. So I think that's a great start. Um, I think it's great news. I'd like to see the number higher, of course, but I'm, I'm quite impressed with that. Yeah. And look, I, I think I heard a podcast recently that that said this. I thought it was really, really a good way to frame it is that. The internet, when it, you know, came kind of into existence, was innovative because it allowed you to take any piece of information and send it to anyone. Mm -hmm. And Bitcoin is really the same thing, but with value. You can take mm -hmm. monetary value and mm -hmm. send it to anyone in the world. And you can do it instantly and for all intents and purposes, free. Mm -hmm. And you can send a smaller amount than you've ever been able to send before. We're going to see just how small as time right. goes on. But I think that's one of the more fascinating parts. Good. All right. Well, let's go to the next one, which is uh, another uh, Brazilian um, uh, institution allowing the purchase of Bitcoin for 30 million customers. And I think on our last show, we had a new bank, um, which has 53 million customers. So now you're talking about, you know, almost a hundred million people in Brazil. And I don't know if there's overlap here or whatnot, but still it's, you know, they got 30 million customers. They're not uh, insignificant and uh, they're going to allow, uh, allow Bitcoin purchases. Yeah. I think uh, it's, it's more, more news for Brazil. Something tells, I look, it's all speculation, but I would not be surprised if Bitcoin is the first like, really big country to have some kind of Bitcoin adoption. Kind of seems like we're trending a bit like that right now. Maybe it's just the, the news that we're getting over the past few weeks, but that's just a guess. Um, well, I think any country, um, and I think Latin America is a good example of this. I think parts of Africa are a good example. There, you know, there's not much of a middle class in Brazil. Um, you know, there are probably some people who are very well off and there are many, many people who are more or less in below oh, the poverty wow. line by mm -hmm. any standard. So, you know, I think when you see these types of 
things rolling out, you know, what opportunities are being created for people who really have no ability to save any money um, to now be able to, you know, put a little bit here or there into Bitcoin to maybe actually capture some of that, that wealth that they've, that they've created that otherwise, you know, is going to be inflated away or, you know, or not really, you know, or stolen. Yeah. Yeah. All right. You want to keep going or you got anything else yeah. about Brazil? No, I, I just think that we're seeing a nice adoption there and we're seeing, you know, I, I think, I think my comment on this is that, because the price of Bitcoin is is down from its peak of from November 2021, I think there's there's always a change in sentiment when this happens, and that's fine. There's sentiment. There's a change in sentiment on the retail level. Mm-hmm. That's one thing. But for these large companies to do this, and I know, I, I think we're going to get into it in our next story a bit that a lot of large companies are looking to do this. And when, when a large company puts something in place, it can take, if they're really, really fast, it'll take months, let's say six months. Six months would be like incredibly fast for a large company. But a lot of the stuff they do takes years, a year or two, maybe three years to implement anything. So I'm not saying it took PicPay, uh, three years to implement this in brazil but i know they've been working on it let's say they were certainly working on it last year and it takes companies a while to build the infrastructure out to to dot their i's and cross their t's so to speak and to launch something so we're going to see more things i find it interesting to see the things that are launched during this this crypto winter bear market whatever you want to call it this mm-hmm. has obviously been on the radar for a while and there's another thing with this pick pay was that you can use PicPay to pay your bills. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit different than a Venmo. Uh, so it, it would allow people in Brazil to pay their bills with Bitcoin. I don't think you're going to see many people doing that. But these adoption stories are, are significant. And you said, like I said last week, we had New Bank, which was 50 million. There's 30 million. Maybe there's, there is some crossover, but still you're seeing large swaths of the brazilian public be able to have access to bitcoin and it's not just brazil i mean there there are stories we don't include here every week i know like the fifth largest bank in switzerland is now offering bitcoin to their customers and that's not the first bank in switzerland we've seen doing it so we're seeing this stuff happen and it's we want to see this we want to see each week week after week we want to see financial institutions all over the world expand the use of this to their customers. We want to see banks doing it. We want to see merchants doing it. And with that, I think it's a great segue into the merchants. Yeah, really good. All right. So um, this is a survey done uh, by BitPay, I believe. Is that right? Um, 85% of merchants see crypto payments as a way to reach new customers. So what do you know about this? Well, that's, that's their headline. I, right. You know, they... When you, when, I, when you dig into it a little bit, uh, there's some other things in there that I thought were interesting, uh, particularly one that you noticed on this. So I'm going to let you, I don't want to steal your idea there. <laughs> no, that's okay. Yeah. Well, the, the thing that I thought was the most um, impactful was that the, these, the companies that they talk to, the merchants that, you know, they're talking to about allowing their customers to pay with, uh, cryptocurrency they're talking about businesses that have annual earnings of over a billion dollars so um you know these are not um startup companies these are not small Mm -hmm. companies if you're a company that's making over a billion dollars a year in profit you've got some scale you've got some some uh, some longevity most most likely um i don't think too many companies are you know just starting up and uh and kicking off a million dollars of profit a uh, billion dollars of profit i'm sorry mm-hmm. um right away so these are you know established companies that uh have big footprints and um they're seeing the the need to allow their customers to pay this way mm-hmm yeah, and one of the things I did find in there that I, I would agree with on their survey is that, and this is kind of a no-brainer, merchants would like to pay the lowest fees possible for payment processing. So 
if their normal payment processing is, let's just say, one and a half to three and a half percent, and they can come in and get something that's between a half a percent to one percent, that's very attractive to the merchants. That's just money they're putting in their pockets. I mean, they're giving away a lot of times two percent or so to these payment processors. Yeah, look, you know, I, I do. I do consulting in the accounting world, as you know, and um, when I have retail clients um, that are accepting credit card payments, the merchant fees are going to be almost inevitably, you know, in the in their top five line items. You know, mm-hmm. obviously, rent and, and people tend to be your biggest expense mm-hmm. line items, um, aside from the actual cost of your product if you're selling a product, but um, but below the gross profit line, you know, merchant fees are going to be one of the bigger line items. And so if you could come up with a way, if you're at, you know, one and a half to three and a half percent, let's just say you're at an average of two and a half, although mm. I think it's typically closer to three um, mm. when you see those merchant services being paid. Um, mm. But let's say it's, you know, two and a half percent. If you can get that, you know, even cut in half. Uh, if you can take one of the biggest line items on your income statement and cut it in half, um, that's going to be meaningful to any business. Mm. Yeah. And there's stuff that the payment processors do where you will, all of the contracts are different, but a lot of times it's going to be like not a percentage transaction fee. There'll be a, a unit transaction fee and then a percentage transaction fee on top of that. Right. Right. Yeah. It'll be, uh, it could be, you know, 2% 2% plus 25 cents, you know, and right. so if you're, if you're right. a smaller, if your transaction sizes are smaller, that 25 cents could be a meaningful percentage. Exactly. And so for something like this, it's, it's a way to the, the merchants benefit. The consumers don't benefit as much. It's something we talked about because of Jack Maller's announcement at uh, the Bitcoin conference back in April, where savings to merchants are, are going to catch on. Uh, also in this poll, they said that the the biggest hindrance was the point of sale terminals, like getting that, that uh, alternative payment method in some kind of point of sale system, which we're seeing is rapidly improving. Well, I, I have an answer to that, which is that go back, I don't know, three or four years and go to any store and what percentage of the credit card machines allowed you to tap your phone or your credit card on the credit card machine and compare that to the percentage now that that allow you to do that yeah i would agree and uh and and that was that was big there were those were big companies pushing i mean people apple has been pushing apple pay for i'm not sure how many years it's got to be five or six years now got to be something close to that. Yeah. But it's only been in the probably the past couple of years where all the credit cards now have contactless, you know, chips on them and all of that stuff where Mm. you're actually able to use that technology. The point being that in order to do that, you had to actually change the software and in some cases the hardware of the terminal machines. Um, And that happened pretty quickly. I don't think that that's, mm-hmm. I don't see that as a huge barrier. I think if, if there's, you know, the, the push to be able to accept um, Bitcoin as a payment method and you can connect to those rails, um, whether that's over lightning or, or whatever, um, I don't think, I think it, it can get rolled out relatively quickly. Um, we've seen it happen with other things in that, in that, you know, terminal payment mm. processing space. Well, that, that terminal uh, and appears to be changing rather rapidly. I'm noticing a lot of new terminals out and about. I'm noticing these kind of slimmer terminals, anything that's done by Square. And I'm certainly no expert in these things, but I am seeing more and more of the touchless or the tap to pay terminals. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, it's, I think that we're we're certainly heading into some challenging economic times ahead. And as we've said before in other episodes, 
if there's a way to get value from your customers or a way to get customers to buy your product who normally would not be buying it because of a lack of discretionary income, tapping into the, we're going to call it the crypto world, I can see that being significantly beneficial. And um, it's beneficial both in terms of revenue for the merchants and in terms of cost savings for the merchants. And um, th that's that famous uh, quote by, uh, I, don't, I can't believe I just blanked on his name, uh, Warren Buffett. Show me the incentives and I'll show you the outcomes. Yep. Mm -hmm. So certainly a lot of incentives there for merchants, without a doubt. Absolutely. All right. And then let's go to our last one here. Um, seems like we always have something in the, uh, in the soccer world with, uh, with Bitcoin or crypto. And so uh, the OKX exchange is becoming the uh, sponsor of the Man City training kit. Yeah, so to get an understanding of just how crazy people are about this and what a big deal it is, uh, OKX, I believe, paid $20 million to, to have their name on the training kit. Not the kit they're going to wear during the game. The one they wear before the game or at training. Right? Well, they, yeah, they will wear it. They probably will wear it on the field before the game. Before the game, right. But they will buy it, and Manchester City has won the Premier League in England for the last five years, and their fan base is nothing that we could really conceive of in this country. It's just they're maniacs. And uh, $20 million is a lot of money to be on a, uh, a, a training jersey. And I'm not sure how long that contract is for. I wasn't able to tell if it was – a multi-year or not, but mm -hmm. given the sums that I've seen in that sport, I would not be surprised if it was 20 million just for one year. I, I, and while I like to see things being adopted, I don't think that that Manchester city really cared that it was a, a crypto exchange or what the business was behind it. They wanted to make sure I'm sure there was very little reputational risk to man city. Right. But as long as someone's willing to, to, to stroke a $20 million check, um, I don't think they really cared that much. But, but I think the bigger part of this is brand awareness for the rest of the world. And what I mean by that is that while soccer is not very big in the U S although it is growing very rapidly, uh, it is everything to people in a lot of these countries. And mm -hmm. so you're talking about, you know, a team like, like Manchester city having this, that's exposure. To, I'm just going to say it's exposure to a minimum of a billion people. If I'm so wrong, don't put in the comments, tell me, you know, I, I'm crazy about that, but I think it's exposure to a minimum of a billion people. And, and we're also going to see some sponsorship at the world cup Later this year, I forgot who is going to be a sponsor for that. But I, I, I think that when you talk about like awareness and and changing the mindset of people, there might not be a better way to spread the message around the world than on soccer jerseys. Yeah, well, and look, I think one one of the things that um, took me a little bit to to understand um living in the u.s and and i mean soccer for most people in the u.s soccer is a sport that kids play until they're around 10 years old for most mm -hmm. people and in in the u.s you know we have foot we have american football we have baseball we have basketball we have the nhl we have lots of sports um and they're all taken pretty seriously and they're all very big business and in most of these countries, it's just soccer. There's no other sport, really. I mean, yeah, sure. And, you know, in parts of Europe, you might have some rugby or other sports. But for the most part, the, the sport that people watch around the world um, is soccer. And just because it's not as big here, um, we can't forget that it's just 
huge around the world. And so when you see um, people paying millions of dollars to put their you know, cryptocurrency exchange uh, logo on a jersey, or when you see the ability to buy tickets using Bitcoin, um, all of those things are exposing a tremendous number of people to that. I agree. It's, it's really quite remarkable exposure. Really, really remarkable. And not only that, but do you know how many of these jerseys they're going to sell? Oh. I mean, Man City is a worldwide, Man City is like a, a worldwide brand. I don't know how many people are going to buy their training jerseys, but it, it's significant. I mean, the amount of jerseys they sell, I saw a stat one time for one of the big teams and it's just like this mind blowing number <laughs> of how much they, they sell, how much they make in merchandise and how many jerseys they sell. And, uh, I think that's, I, I like to see it. I don't really think it's, uh, I I'm not giving Man City credit for any kind of Bitcoin adoption, but I'm happy for them to put this uh, this advertisement on their jerseys and have you know hundreds of millions, if not billion plus people see it. And I think well, it's one of those things where you know we kind of talked about this before. It's one of those things where you just realize that crypto as much as we don't really talk about crypto and we really Bitcoin focus, but crypto is kind of here to stay. Even when there is, even when Bitcoin dominates the monetary system, let's assume that Bitcoin dominates, really dominates the monetary system and it becomes, oh, I don't know, let's just say they price oil in Bitcoin, something crazy like that. You're still going to have these altcoins. There'll still be other things there. There'll be people that are making NFTs and spark contracts, whatever people want to do on, on alternative blockchains, that's fine. But I think that concept of crypto is rapidly becoming just part of the world we live in. It's no longer this unusual thing. We're seeing governments scramble to try and figure out what to do because they're, as always, kind of typically behind but in fairness to the governments, I mean, who knows what to do with this new technology that's that's rapidly emerging. And now we're seeing, you know, Man City has won the Premier League four of the last five years. So they right. are so, a monster team. Yeah. And so what I was going to say is that they're, you have to assume that they're not just putting anyone's logo on any of their official kits. Um. For the uh, for the non soccer fan listeners in America, the kit is the uniform. Um, the they're not just going to say, "Oh, these guys want to give us twenty million so we can put their name on our jerseys." They're gonna they're gonna do some due diligence. They are, you know, they're well, and so well, I have to kind of stop you there because, in fairness, they will put a lot of like betting. You'll see a lot of them have like a. a betting houses. I don't know what you call them, but sure. like sportsbet.io gambling, site. on, yeah, gambling yeah. sites on their jersey. So they're, they're not, well, no, no, uh, I wasn't saying from like a moral standpoint or anything like that. My point being that they, they have to make sure, first of all, they got to make sure that whoever it is has the 20 million. Um, and that they're not putting, you know, and may, and this could be complete speculation, but you know, let's just take Voyager as an example. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, is Voyager going to be on a Premier League soccer jersey when there's news stories all over the place that they, you know, are about to go out of business because they because their biggest bar defaulted on their loan? And so, meaning that, I don't, I don't, I think that it's somewhere in between. I'm not saying that there that there's a huge filter on who they will put on their jersey, but in order for them to accept that sponsorship they're going to need to have some comfort that, that it's not a business that's going to be out of business tomorrow. Cause that would not go well for them either. So the point being that there is some kind of collective understanding that these are businesses that are going to be around. Um, the industry at least is going to be around. Um, so I think that it, it's just, you know, one other indicator that, that it's uh, it's just something that, isn't going away. Mm, I agree. Just another data point that just shows, you know, how the world is changing 
And a lot of times it changes. You just don't realize it. You don't kind of stop to look around and see what's happening. And, and uh, that's one of the things we're trying to highlight for people is to, to bring the best stories of the week and to try to help people get a sense of what does the future look like? Not that we know, but you can put together enough data points to get, to make a better guess. And that's all we can ever do is put together the best guess that we can. Yeah. And to use that information to kind of get a sense of where things are going and what trends we're seeing and, and what are the major points um, that are leading towards, you know, more mass adoption. Agreed. Anything Uh, else, Matt? Not for me. All right, great. Then can you tell people where they can find us, please? Yeah, I was going to say that you you did say something that I don't think we've said before in our closing um, when we talk about where to find us is that if you have a story that you'd like to hear us talk about, or if you come across something, please send us an email or or DM on Twitter. Um, you can find us at our website, btcbutlers.com, at btcbutlers on Twitter. You can email us, info at btcbutlers.com. Um, you should subscribe on YouTube, like us, comment, listen on whatever podcast platform uh, is your choice. And uh, we appreciate the, uh, the support and hope to hear from you. And we'll see you next time. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. Bye.